Welcome to Whiskey in the Arts podcast, a collaborative exploration of creation and perception, with your hosts, Kurt Protzman and Dan Kroll. later end up starting a label and starting, you know, their own vodka, their own anything. More people are into and understand. Do you feel any of that in the industry, either one of you guys? Uh, it's just there's no, more we, information out there. Yeah, we, we, are, we are not seeing too much of that going on here. I know of a handful of people who have done a little bit of home distilling just, you know, for a bit of fun. But in my professional experience, it's very difficult to recreate the dynamics of a full-size still, particularly if if you're using copper, which you generally would do um, on the small scale. You never get anywhere close to getting the right ratio of copper, so you end up with a rather dirty spirit. But even worse than that is depending on what substrate you're using to for your uh, fermentable material, there is a real risk that you will distill over methanol. Now, if you're using cereal grains, that is not a problem because the, the sugars from cereals, cereal grains are hexose sugars, six carbon ring sugars, which cannot form the metabolic pathways to give you methanol. But if you're using other things like um, fruits and things like that, uh, the fructose sugars do lead to the production of methanol. And, you know, with, with a homemade setup, you certainly won't have a column to remove it or anything like that. So that that would be my two caveats. And you know, let's just say, as a distiller myself, of many years experience, I'm not looking to be setting up a still in my home anytime soon. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, here in the US, it is, uh, it is illegal. Uh, you, can, you can ferment at home. I think it's, what, a couple hundred gallons of beer that you can make as a, as a US citizen without having any issues. But uh, once you begin to distill stuff, they have, they've got a problem with you setting up a potential bomb uh, inside yeah. the house. So. Yeah, I've concluded the stuff pretty, much, pretty universally is inexpensive enough that I can just leave yeah. it to right. professionals. Right. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting thing about the scale of things. Uh, you know, it makes sense uh, in terms of it would just be impossible, even though you're looking at, okay, well, there's this much liquid in this size still. This still is, is a scale model of an actual still. It, when they when uh, small barrels are used, uh, you know, f- uh, five-liter barrels or 10-liter or, or barrels or whatever, yeah, people are also mystified by the idea that the that just because this it, it okay the ratios are the same, but they're not really. I mean the 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 headspace inside that cask is is tiny tiny tiny. The the wood to liquid ratio is huge, so there's mm-hmm. just no you know there's there's a requirement that you've got to sort of meet this minimum size thing, or barrel maturation just doesn't work the way that it ought to. Uh, and it, you know, you'd think that it should if it's okay. All the all the ratios, are, it's just the small version. But to your point, it's just I can't imagine getting a good result out of out of tiny gear and uh, out of tiny tiny casts, as is the case when you've there. I think it's getting better now. 
the idea mm-hmm. that uh, that American craft spirits uh, went through a period where they w- they just were convinced it's like well, we got to use small casks because we got to pay the bank back and we got to get something in the bottle and and it's got to look good and at least something like whiskey so they're using these tiny 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 barrels they made a bunch of first impressions out there that it was over a much over oaked uh, uh, immature and and insufficiently oxidized spirit so it all tasted like crap yeah. unfortunately yeah you, you, you need oxidative aging with a headspace in it over a number of years to develop the complexity and fragrance there's no question about that yeah and they tend to with the uh, with the cast that you can get and I and I'm sure it's different you know I'm sure it's evolving. But the casts that you can get from Coopers in the U.S. that are those are the smaller sizes. The, I'm not sure there's much in, uh, much as much flexibility in terms of the toasting and charring regimen for those. Mm. Certainly not the ones that home uh, home distillers. Not that that's legal, but uh, that home distillers get are just a pre-char, like a three mm. or even a four, and so that's just kind of what you get. There's really not a whole lot of there's not a lot of play there. It's a strange. Just, just the, the, the op- operationally, I mean, m- one of my main suppliers, you know, Speyside Cooperage, on occasions have made small barrels for me, but they just don't like doing it because they're not geared up to do it. And, you know, there's almost as much work goes into making a tiny barrel as there is a 200 or a 250 litre hogshead. Right. So when those get made there, are they, are they made... Uh, from you know, virgin oak staves, or are they are they hogsheading those together, just except that they're tiny. They're generally breaking down casks and making smaller versions of them, so the casks have been pre-charred and such like. Oh, okay, got it. Uh, that's got that whole operation. I get asked questions uh, about the dynamics of Spacehead Cooperage all the time, in terms of you know what's coming your way and what do they do with the cast that that you're selling back that have been used at either Glamorgy or whatever and mm-hmm. how do you disguise what they you know the provenance of that cask and, and so on and so forth it's got to be an immensely complex uh set of operations at space it's not i mean not to mention just huge but how do they how do they in terms of your relationship with space mm-hmm. how do you work through the idea that you're looking for i mean in, in terms of ex bourbon oak there's going to be a fairly broad range of things that come your way but because they know you and knew you you know them how much does that play into outside of the designer cast stuff how much does that play into the cask supply that you get from space well I, i'm a very long-term customer of Speyside Cooperage and uh, Willie Taylor and Andy Russell know exactly what I'm looking for. And by and large, they will generally buy their ex-bourbon or ex-Tennessee sour mash barrels, if we're going to be technically correct about some of the supply. They'll be buying it from a very small number of suppliers. And generally, if there's anything different goes in there, then they'll let me know and say, Bill, are you okay with this? But they, they'll have details of how the barrels were um, made, whether it is independent stave um, or, or whoever who manufactured the, the barrels. So I tend to get fairly steady supply from them unless I'm actually asking them for something different, which mm. I occasionally am. 
But in terms of my so-called bread and butter casks, which the majority of both Glen Morangie and Ardbeg New Spirit are going into, um, it the 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 pedigree of these barrels it tends to be from generally only two or three suppliers. Oh wow! Uh, I didn't realize it was quite that narrow. Yeah. That's 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 amazing. Um, one of the things that we ought to do at this point is establish what it is that we're doing here. Um, so uh, we this is episode, I want to say it's five now. Kurt, is that right? This it's is five, five yeah. uh, of Whiskey in the Arts podcast. Um, our guest, we are honored uh, today to have as our guest, uh, the one and only Dr. Bill Lumsden, who uh, just recently won his fifth uh, IWC Master Distiller of the Year in six years. So congratulations for that. That's a, an you. amazing feat, uh, not to mention all the... I mean, you've won uh, Master Distiller of the Year awards from a number of institutions over the course of your, uh, your career. So there's lots and lots of those, but the, the, to have the same uh, group award that five out of six years uh, is not only unprecedented, but really, really impressive. So congratulations for that. And thank you. And, 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 in a lot of subtle uh, titles, uh, when when you read about these awards, you know, rock star of the whiskey world. <laughs> that, that, that's because that of my bad behavior, Kurt. That's nothing to do with winning prizes. <laughs> oh. That's to do with <laughs> trashing hotel rooms and getting arrested and things like that. Oh. Well, I, perhaps I didn't read deeply enough. <laughs> So the, the premise of what we're looking at uh, with Whiskey in the Arts podcast isn't necessarily uh, whiskey in and of itself. Uh, it is a subset of a broader discussion about uh, forms of nonverbal communication. And, and Kurt brought up a very interesting thing to, to me as we were sort of researching how to go about this. And he'd run across in an interview with you that uh, that Flaviar had done uh, the, a thing mm-hmm. that I didn't realize about you which was your your penchant for for Latin jazz um, mm. and as we kind of dug into that seam of things a bit and you'd mentioned in that interview that uh, that from time to time you'll you'll enjoy a, a La Santa and a cigar while mm-hmm. listening to that mm-hmm. and it and all of that kind of came together to me as all of those things are culturally thick messages. Uh, each of them suggests a point of origin. Uh, there's jazz, and then there's Latin jazz, and, and jazz is amazing, and it has its roots in uh, all kinds of different uh, musical forms, and it is, it's, a, it's a really pure type of nonverbal expression. But Latin jazz has a sense of place to it that I think mm-hmm. you cannot miss uh, the, under the, the Latin percussion underpinnings, the way that they handle the polyrhythms, the instrumentation, all of those things suggest a place. Uh, and w- it doesn't surprise me at all that that is a thing that, uh, that you would find interesting because what you do day in and day out suggests in liquid form a singular spot on the globe. Do, do you, how much of that, in terms of it, so I was just thinking about, okay, Latin jazz and, and, the, and the folks that have and continue to proliferate that, how much do they think about the, the, the culture and the people that they're representing in musical form? Uh, when you're working on whiskey, uh, and whiskey is sort of an, an extension of Scotland, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, you as an individual, you've got a creative uh, process, you've got a vision, you've got a thing that you want to put in the bottle in terms of its, the aromatics, the flavor profile characteristics, and so on and so forth. But how much of your creative process is informed by Scotland as a place, as a people, as a history, as a culture? <laughs> Okay, that's a very interesting question, Dan, because, you know, I I grew up in, I was born in 1960, so I grew up in Scotland throughout the 60s and 70s, and, you know, I I need to be careful what I say here, but Scotland has a reputation of being a very parochial nation who rigidly sticks to its own way of doing things and doesn't welcome outside interference. And, you know, we we went through a period of enlightenment, I think, uh, 80s, 90s and noughties. But I think we're going back to, you know, with all the talk, the sabre-rattling talk of independence, I think we risk slipping back into... The, a more parochial, unwelcoming view of things. And as you know, Dan, as someone who works for our particular parent group, I am essentially discouraged from talking about things political. But I need to say that to answer your question. So while I, of course, respect the traditions of production of our product, I actually think I've got a much more cosmopolitan view of things and much of my good work I've done um, over the years and my more exciting products have been shaped not at all with with an introspective look into Scotland, but looking much more at international markets and different cultures and cuisines. So obviously for that reason, the link into Latin American jazz also greatly, um, I I became a real lover of it because it was something so different. And, you know, with the best will in the world, um, while Scottish bagpipe music music is stirring to listen to if you see a pipe band marching uh, past, I don't know too many people who actually sit and listen to it in their own home on a CD or something like that. (laughs) So I guess what I'm saying here is that um, I I have one eye on the heritage and traditions, but I've got much, much broader horizons than that. And I think most of my fellow distillers in Scotland who have also established a degree of success are also like that and we've moved away from the really dusty crusty old image of old men with beards like like us three today I am a little bit unshaven today wearing tartan and sitting in front of an open fire and only drinking scotch whiskey neat we've moved away from that completely and broadened our horizons and i think there's a nice link between your mention of my love of the the latin american jazz bossa nova style music and a much more a cosmopolitan view of things it's yeah kurt go ahead you you know it's 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 interesting. It reminds me, Americans, a lot of times when they travel to Europe, anywhere in Europe, there is a tendency to treat it all as a museum, to only go to the Tower of London, to only go to Edinburgh Castle, but not to go to the gentrified side of town 
that you know that we're so drawn to uh, in the states and some of the revitalization of urban areas. So we'll, we'll treat it as it's in the past. But brands can get stuck in this. So Fender guitar, Fender mm-hmm. musical instruments, the most iconic, right? They they arguably their future is behind them because all anybody wants is a 1952 Telecaster or a reproduction of a 1952 Telecaster. They're not looking for a lot of good ideas. Gibson guitar, for instance, came out years ago uh, with these automatic tuners, this robotic tuner, and everybody hated it. They're not looking for that. They're looking for the quality in the historical instruments. So if you're running a brand like Gibson or Fender, you think, well, how the hell do I get out of this? I got to advance this product. So I like what you're saying, which is if I just double down on what we've done before, you know, where, where do I go from there? Yeah. And it, it's quite interesting, Kurt. You've just reminded me of another parallel. And I think some of these old guitars are probably not that easy to play. And it's the same if you've got an old sports car with, you know, a stick shift and a really heavy clutch and no power steering, they are very difficult to drive by today's standards. But that's part of the fun. It shouldn't be easy. It should be a challenge. Well, and there's sentimentality in all of that, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you bring up the sports car thing. Um, this The struggle itself, uh, the rustic nature of, of that interface is something that, yeah, I think that people do crave uh, because it is it harkens back to a thing that can no longer be... Uh, you couldn't re-engineer that to be what it is. You know, that, that tactile approach was... It's a bit like, uh, and, you know, go back to the whiskey thing, uh, a, a, any bottle of whiskey is a, a particularly like a single-cast, single, uh, a single-cast, cast-strength bottling is a singular moment in time that you couldn't possibly recreate even if you wanted to. So visiting it in that moment is a very interesting thing, a very tactile thing, and and the knowledge that it, it's like uh, uh, the last dodo or whatever, you know that it's it's uh, a, a, a window to a thing that can no longer be. I think that's, I, I get it, I think it's fascinating. But Bill, what I hear you saying is, I, I don't want to be just beholden to that. There, we, we, we all know what that is. We all love that. Where can we go from here? And I, I read a few things about you that talked about, you know, sort of the, the constraints of the whiskey world or the rules and, and how much margin, how much can you play in the margins of those to, 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 to bring it forward? I mean, you you can play around the margins of the rules um, uh, and bring it forward. You can also play around the margins of the rules and completely ruin something. Uh, And the next thing I was going to say here is that, um, you know, there's been quite a bit of press coverage recently about a few bits and pieces going on. There's one distillery in Ireland who's beating the drum about terroir and you know, I, I don't disagree with what they are saying, but at the end of the day, you know, does it actually taste any good? And I haven't yet tasted this, but I've read many reviews and the answer to that is singularly no. So you know, what's the point? What's the point in proving that different fields of barley can give you minuscule differences at the new make spirit? part if at the end of the day it doesn't taste any good and that has always been my mantra Kurt that 
whatever I'm doing, whether it's something recreating something traditional or old fashioned, or if I'm pushing the boundaries a little bit more, at the end of the day, it has to taste good. Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, we've talked uh, and we've talked on here quite a bit, Dan, more eloquently than than I about if it tastes good or if it's too. Well, you had said once that there could be this that the original is, you know, too easy a drinker. And so there's a problem in that. And um, or, or, or some other things that get people to loving whiskey that maybe we don't really like. Um, and I was going to ask you, Bill, what the right amount of peanut butter is to put in the whiskey. Uh, but it, you <laughs> that, know, that, that would a lot be of guys. Ze- that would be zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, um, sometimes, and this happens in music a ton. Uh, what used to really more when I was when I was growing up, um, ubiquity uh, was sort of uh, uh, equated to be. Crap. Um, if everybody knew about it, then it must be pedestrian. Exactly. Uh, it must be uh, a sort of a dumbed-down version. And, and me being a connoisseur of whatever, of music, or, of, or you know, maybe it's uh, cigars or whatever it is, if everybody's smoking it, if everybody's listening to it, then uh, then it, then it's inherent. It must be crap. When when you look at something like, let's say, it's Glamorgy Original, or, uh, or, or you know, you, Kurt, you'd mentioned uh, Buena Vista Social Club. When that, when that first album came out in the U.S. and it sort of knocked everybody out um there that you know there were some circles that were like well if all these people dig it then it must you know then i can't be seen to like it uh because it it must be it, it, the it's it's a bit of a um familiarity breeds contempt thing uh right. when in fact those are the things that's one of those one of my favorite things about being able to represent a, a brand like lamorgi is that people want to look at the ubiquity of something like Lamorgi Original, uh, or you know Glenfiddich Twelve, or, or those things that you are tripping over uh, in the single malt realm, and treat them like they are um, the latest uh, Britney Spears single or something. Or it's like, no, that's this is this is it, it's amazing liquid. It's just that a lot of people have caught on to that. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're all Philistines. You know, I think we do struggle to a degree. Trying to get over that idea that uh, that because it's popular, it must it must inherently be substandard somehow. It's a weird dynamic, and we've talked on here about being a snot about having knowledge and it, 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 clubbing somebody over the head with it versus having it just inform. And I think going back to what Bill said, it's got to taste good, right? So you know, uh, "Brandy by Looking Glass" is a good song. You don't have to call it a guilty it's, pleasure. It's a great yeah. song, man, by any measure. So yeah. it's got to taste good. Yeah. No, it, it's, a, it's a real interesting challenge, Dan, and it's deeply frustrating for a lot of us in the industry that people do tend to overlook most companies' flagship products. And, you know, I, th- this is I've been very well behaved so far in this podcast and I've not had one single dig at the marketeers. But, you know, if you speak to them about your flagship product, their eyes just glaze over because there's where's the news in that? They're not interested in that. They're not going to make a career in marketing out of something that is already existing and successful. And I just think it's uh, such a shame. And, you know, in my 
very rarefied world. I can get my sweaty mitts on just about any whiskey I want, but I tend to go for the classics because that's what I like. And, you know, occasionally I'll grab one of these bad boys here, a single cask Glenmorangie finished in a Chateau Margot Barrique, and I'll enjoy it for what it is, but it's not my go-to, it's not my everyday thing, so... There's a reason for that. Right. Well, Bill, let, let me ask you, that got to, I, I was asking Dan, I wanted to ask you, you know, we uh, the last podcast we did, we talked to a very interesting sound engineer, producer, musician, and he talked about his ability to record, track, and put out a single in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about your business and the patience you must employ for the result and and it seems to me uh help us under help me understand that like i I look at your your phd your scientist but you're 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 also trying new things um talk to us a little bit about the, the patience of realization of your creation okay um it's it's a tremendously difficult thing to do, and especially if you're someone like me with a notoriously low boredom threshold and an almost <laughs> total lack of patience for anything. So um, the way that th- this is not a problem to me anymore, Kurt, because I've been with Glenn Morangie now for 26 years So I've got literally dozens and dozens of experiments coming through that I kick-started many, many years ago. And, you know, at the start of my career with Glenmorangie, there were so many things needed sorted at the distillery and, you know, with wood supply and such like. So that kept me pretty occupied. But I, I was thinking about my successor, whoever he or she is, and it really will take them a long time before their own creations start to see the light of day. But, you know, in the meantime, they'll have plenty things that I kick-started to keep them occupied. And so the the real answer to, to your question is that either be a very, very patient person and just enjoy working in the industry, or carry out lots of experiments so there's always something new and something different coming through. And that's the only reason I think I've managed to survive and stay relatively sane in this very long-term industry that I've had plenty new things that I've been playing around with. You've got uh, you've got a uh, an entire experimental distillery at your disposal now, um, or you will soon. Uh, I'm guessing that you will be uh, subjecting virtually every element of the production of whiskey to some form of experimentation within that environment. Is that a thing when you uh, when you started at Glenwood 26 years ago? Is that a thing that you ever envisioned you'd actually have access to? I, I did not, Dan. I did not see that coming and. You know, when, when I started off, uh, even with the Glenmorangie company, I wasn't really sure where my journey would take me, uh, how long I would stay with with Glenmorangie. Uh, as you know, it is my first love in terms of malt whiskey going way back to the 1980s 
which is going to be leading on to, because uh, I, I know I need to make some music choices and I've thought very carefully about this. But um, yeah, the, the basically because I've enjoyed experimenting so much over the years that I, I have outgrown our two main distilleries um, into there are some things I'd like to try that I simply cannot do at the main distilleries. So the only way to allow me to do this was to build this experimental distillery. And my, uh, my last boss, not our current CEO, but the former one, indulged me in that vision and authorised the money for me to do something. And at that time, Neither Mark nor I were 100% sure what this would be, but it's turned out it's grown arms and legs and it's become the Experimental Lighthouse Distillery, which will be officially opened uh, this August, all other things being equal. That's fantastic. Now, a, a brief bit of education, because I come into all this uh, not well-educated, uh, on whiskey, so it's been fascinating, but... We all see in the store or whatever the, the different ages and the different years, but give us a, can you give us a sense in, in the experimental lab, when can you first, I mean, just plainly spoken, when can you first taste something and see if it's going in a direction? How does that sort of look? You don't have to wait the eight or 10 years, I assume. How, how, how does that sort of come together? Okay. It, it depends very much on whether your experiment is wood-led, so in other words, you're looking at maturation, or if it's to do with primary production. And if it's to do with primary production, where, for example, you'll be using different styles of malted barley, then you will see immediately once the new spirit is distilled. And sometimes the biggest challenge, Kurt, is choosing barrels that are inert enough so that you don't mask the differences. And that's why I was ever so slightly sceptical about the terroir experiments of the previous mentioned but unnamed distillery, because after many years' maturation, you ain't picking any difference up, I, I, no matter what they say. So um, if I'm looking at certain barrel types, um, generally you might get an indication within two to three years um, and, uh, you know, if, if, for example, I mean, the original experiment uh, that this sample I held up here, the Margot cask, um, I took mature Glenmorangie and finished that for two or three years. So I knew fairly quickly what direction this was going on. But, you know, occasionally I'll fill things and I won't quite forget about them, but I'll, I'll get bored with them and I'll move on to something else. And then it's not until many years later I rediscover them. So I guess what I'm saying is there is no hard and fast answer to your question. It just depends what it is you're actually doing in the distillery. Interesting. Very it interesting. feels like uh, in terms of varying uh, types of creative processes, uh, some of them, uh, the, the visual arts, for example, let's say it's, uh, you know, traditional painting or uh, we met a gal. Um, as a function of a thing I did with the Chicago Art Institute, I met a gal named Bisa Butler, who is an amazing, a stunning quilt artist, which I never would have put mm -hmm. those three words together before. But 
Mm. She's absolutely amazing. So you've got these types of uh, of creative expressions where you are in control of nearly everything. Uh, and music is one to a degree. There's so much control that you can have, uh, particularly in the digital age, over the audio that gets shared with the consumer of that audio. But there are certain pottery comes to mind, uh, whiskey comes to mind, the kinds of things where the creative process also includes an element of letting go of the control of that creative process because nature or heat or time or factors outside of your control are going to put an indelible signature on your on the product of your creative process that you don't get to dictate that. That to me, I, in terms of when you when you're conceiving a thing, it, the idea that you've got to embrace a, the, a fairly chaotic element of uh, of how nature puts its stamp on on the end product is that a thing that you is that a thing that you try to uh, reverse engineer strategies to cope with, or is it a thing that you just sort of say this? is going to happen. I can't, I have, I have no control over this crossing my fingers. Let's go. I mean, to be, to be honest, Dan, um, I, I will sometimes do a bit of research and study to see, to get a feel for what might happen as a result of the natural element, but that's part of the beauty of it. And again, if, if you got to a stage where you absolutely controlled every single flavor active molecule that ended up in your product, it'd be a sad day. And I would find that quite boring. And I love the unexpected, surprising nature of things. And, you know, more often than not, I will end up with a product which I've tasted dozens, if not hundreds, of individual barrels, and I'm quite pleased with the result. But once you put it all together, there often seems to be this synergistic effect, and there's often a period of marriage, which is a well-known phenomenon in the whiskey industry, where the one, if you leave it to sit the flavors all beautifully integrate together and there often seems to be a synergistic effect. And I just think that's one of the most interesting aspects of it. So so to, to answer your question, no, I, I really seldom try and control aspects like that. Now, in the new experimental distillery, in the fermenters, I do have the capability of controlling things a bit more, particularly in terms of temperature. But, you know, it, it's just to see what would happen. You know, it's not really, I don't have any one particular thing in mind, but I just want to see, can I change things for the better? Who knows? You, you had asked me to think about some songs. Uh, yeah, what were you thinking about? Things? Yeah, what were you? Well, well, were you obviously, Dan knows my love of uh, Latin American bossa nova style jazz. So, uh, you know, Jal Gilberto and Astrid Gilberto with Stan Getz ably backing up. You know, all these good songs like Desafinado and Corcovado and Agua de Berber, for example. They're constantly, I play them constantly uh, in my house. But the one which David Blackmore, our colleague, would be bitterly disappointed if I didn't mention this. And it's one of my favourite songs from the 80s. 
And, you know, in 1980, I was 20. And in 1990, guess what? I was 30. So that particular... Weird. De- de- it's, it's incredible, that, yeah. But that particular <laughs> decade obviously is very memorable for me as I was growing up and went through uni and had a lot of fun then. And there's a lovely link into the whiskey side of things. And it's a fabulous song by the, in my opinion, much underrated writer and performer Thomas Dolby. Nice. And the song is She Blinded Me With Science. Um, Ah, that's a terrific song. This is why we only talk to people our age. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, I think it's, some people think it's very corny, but I think it's brilliant. And it features a cameo appearance by the legendary uh, Professor Magnus Pike. And Magnus Pike, as well as being a British government scientist, he was actually the research director of the distillers company labs at Menstrie, where I got my first job in the industry and while I never met Magnus Pike he had long since retired by the time I went there my first boss actually reported into Magnus Pike so I just love that potential link in there as well that's a that is a great great trek um uh Dolby did a lot of things that were very cool but there's something about that that piece the instrumentation of that piece the air that exists within it the the sort of the the marriage of old and new um his uh, his i mean and it was one of those things when you think back to when that when that track was released uh the video because uh, the, the that yeah. format was was in its infancy and the video content that is that is associated with that track is still holds water. It's still fantastic. It doesn't feel. I mean, it, it's dated to the point that you know when it came out. But the content of it was so well shot. It's so him. It's so left of center, and it it fits. I think the thing that I find most impressive about the video content is that it marries so well with the song itself. It's such a beautiful expression of what that song gives you sonically that I'm, I, I, you know, I don't even know if they bother making videos anymore. It's, if, if it's all just people trying to get kicked out of a house or something on MTV. But <laughs> that, that was, I think, of that, that tune and that video were a watershed moment that I think still hold all kinds of water. So thanks. That's a, that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic call out. And it puts my head into into new wave and in that influence that came through there. I mean that that would be of our generation. That would be the most original uh, music that was happening at the time. And and I don't know extemporaneously here where Dolby fits in that lineage, but it's it's it it's in there. And that is such a distinct sound. Um, Dan and I have talked about this, you know, when, when others are maybe listening to something else more popular and you find yourself listening to an Oingo Boingo or something like this or Squeeze, you're, you're in a different track. And especially if you're going to high school at the time, if that's what's in your Walkman, you're, 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 you're that kid listening to that music. And I, I, well, I've reconciled it by now. I wanted to ask you, uh, Bill, did the the, the Latin jazz piece, so thank you, by the way, one of the things we love about this is going into rabbit holes, so I spent the weekend listening to a lot of Latin jazz, and what I was reminded of is when Buena Vista Social Club came out, Ry Cooter yeah. produced that, and, and it was 
back when you still had to find music sort of physically, right? Maybe I read about it in a, in a spin or a Pace magazine, but that took the world by storm. And for me, it was such a departure from when I was listening to it. I looked at that year in 96, uh, you know, Infinite Sadness, and, or uh, Melancholy and the Infinite mm-hmm. Sadness. You know, it's a huge album, that Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little, Jagged Little Pill. That's what's mm-hmm. going on right then. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm listening to these uh, Cuban musicians and listening to stuff I had never heard before. Did that recording play into your love of this, or were you already on that uh, track, Bill? Uh, I was already on that style before that, and believe it or not, it, it was my late Aunt Stella, who was my, my, my late father's big sister, uh, and when I, I stayed with her for a, a, a year when I was at Glasgow University for my first degree, and she had this collection of records which intrigued me because they were so uncool that to me they were massively cool. And it was things particularly by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. And I started listening to a lot of their stuff and I, I think I must have been given an easy listening compilation album that had Astrid Gilberto on it. And I was immediately drawn to her slightly flat way she sings. And of course, in these days, there was no internet. So I couldn't go on and start Googling things and find lots. I had to trawl around record stores and speak to friends and beg, borrow and steal. And it was through that. So that that would be probably about when did Buena Vista Social Club come out? Because that ninety six, right? Okay, no, this was much earlier than this. This was eighty one and eighty two that I started getting into things like that. And it was one of my best friend's big brothers who was a musician. And yes, Dan, it was him who had the Gibson Les Paul that I got covered in blood and my first ever whiskey drinking experience. And the blood was then my own blood when I got battered by him for it. But that's that's another story for another day. But he, he gave me Is a comp- it, You're sure? Yes. I'm, <laughs> we I'm, could go for, good, we have time for that good, story. It's a good story. <laughs> but he, he, he gave me a compilation LP, which I still have, called Latin Delights. And it, it, it had, because it, it had The Look of Love by Burt Bacharach, which is also one of my songs for this podcast. And, mm, you know, it's nice. ruthless, easy listening, but I just absolutely love it. And there's so many different versions of it. And on that LP, it had things like Jao Gilberto and Stan Getz and such. Like, and that's how I got into it. That, um, that's the, the the piece that jumps directly into my head is, uh, is of course, uh, the girl from Ipanema. Uh, and when yeah. you when you listen to that, and I think I think it's the same, uh, particularly Burt Bacharach. Um, that stuff was so well recorded. There's a there's a uh, uh, such a depth and warmth to the sonics of those tracks, uh, and of course the instru- the 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 instrumentalists are, uh, play uh, amazingly well. Uh, and this was all. This was all, and it sort of goes back to it. It feeds into the process of of uh, making spirits as well. Um, back then, you needed to know how to play uh, really well. There was no real opportunity to correct it uh, via uh, via digital means. 
uh, you were just weren't going to get a studio. You just weren't going to get a gig as a studio musician unless you could play to that level. Uh, and if you were not a recordist at that level, if you were not a sound engineer at that level, Bert, you know, Bert was at the top of his game at that point. Uh, and so you had to be at the top of yours to work with him. Uh, you know, at this point, it, 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 yes, content, the, 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 the emotional content of a piece of, uh, of work, whether it's, you know, the visual arts, sonic arts, whatever it is, content sells and is connective and translates. But the ways by which you arrive at it these days, yeah, I'm not saying it's easier. I'm just saying it's a lot, it's a lot less of an intense thing in terms of can you sing for real? Can you play for real? it's in one way if you have a good idea then it's a little bit easier to get that into the medium that you're looking to get it into then you had to struggle your butt off to become a good singer and a good instrumentalist and a good recordist and those tracks that you're talking about there's there's and i get it that whole easy listening thing but they're, they're sonically just stunningly beautiful pieces yeah well it was a different day that that, that goes back to the brill building and you had writers you had arrangers you had, um, you know, look up documentaries like The Wrecking Crew and realize Jeez. that fast forward to Crosby, Stills, and Nash, they didn't play the instruments on their first album because you didn't do that. You, go, you boys can go out and tour and try your best, but that's not how it's going to get recorded. The, the, the age of the singer-songwriter w- w- was uh, a long ways off in, in, the, in the 50s and early 60s of a, of a Bacharach. And you got Carole King and you've got... Neil Diamond, all these folks writing all these songs for other people and, and producing them in a different way. And one could argue uh, that it was this authentic word of the singer-songwriter, but you can't deny the, the beauty of those productions. And I'm sure those who love that could argue that uh, some, some of the, some of the do-it-all-yourself, it, it doesn't always produce that same sonically. It's a different thing. Yeah, the- who else you got on the? Who else, Bill? This is a great list. Oh, no, uh, cer- certainly. Um, I mean, I have very eclectic musical tastes, but it's just it's interesting, Kurt, that you were talking about. You had composers, you had arrangers, and, and, mm-hmm. and Dan will know where I'm going with this. Then you had actual instrumentalists, but there's one person who always massively. Um, impressed me for a whole host of reasons, but not least because on the majority of his albums, everything was written, composed, arranged, produced, and performed by Prince. So he was just such an incredible, uh, talented guy. And my my all-time favourite Prince song, and again, this is me being my typical difficult self, it's the song If I Was Your Girlfriend, but not from the album Sign of the Times, the live version that was actually played in the film of Sign of the Times. And it's just so much better than the studio version. Yeah, and It's very Prince. difficult to come by. Um, I mean, I, I've got the DVD of the film, but it's just so beautifully played. And I think it's one of his less well-known hits but i just think it's it's amazing only he could possibly write a song like that and if you watch the movie of sign of the times which is ostensibly a movie of a live concert shot at the ahoy club in rotterdam but it's interspersed and cut 
with lots of studio stuff as well, uh, seamlessly. And there's loads of fabulous little um, one-liners and silly little jokes and things like that. Um, and you, for example, when he introduces Sheila E for a drum solo, he'll just turn to the camera and say, not bad for a girl. And just, you know, <laughs> silly things like that, which you wouldn't get away with now. <laughs> no, certainly it, it, not. It's so funny when I think about him, he's seemingly so derivative yet singular. And I think as I think back, the things that were derivative were really more affectations, a little bit of Hendrix, a little bit of James Brown, but his yeah. music is singular. I, I just, it, it, it is. It's. It kind of sits. We've talked about other artists like this that just sort of occupy their own category, and, and I don't. You can't just toss them into R and B and say that's that's it. That doesn't really work. It just does not really work. The next track is from um, before I discovered some of the more easy listening or classical or jazz styles that I. Um, Yep, yep. Um, b before I, I discovered these, um, my first love back in the day, particularly my school days and early university, was rock. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan of Black Sabbath, who I've seen live at least four or five times. Nice. But the next track I'm going to choose is um, my favorite uh, from my other big love then, Led Zeppelin. And it's. To me, it's the absolutely wonderful and much underrated Custard Pie from the Physical Graffiti album. And what I love about that is that it really captures the, the essence of Zeppelin didn't like to lay down loads of different tracks in the studio and merge them all together. They liked to play it live once or twice and would maybe, and I'll, I'll maybe get my terminology wrong, but overdub a guitar solo or something like that. But Custard Pie is just brilliantly raw. And I, I just think it's so good. It's nice. so interesting you picked that one out. Physical Graffiti sometimes doesn't get the love. And I don't know what that's a, a, about. But you, based on you saying that, I'm going to make a prediction about you, Bill. I'm going to make a prediction mm -hmm. that you love all the Sabbath. But I'm going to make a prediction that you, I'm seeing a pattern here that you like the underdog Black Sabbath album for. I'm going to make a prediction that that's the one that that holds a little bit of a special place for you. Is that true at all? Uh, uh, Black Sabbath 4. Yes. Yes. My, 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 my two favorite Sabbath albums are, in fact, 4, but also um, Symptoms of the Universe, one of their more underrated ones. And, in fact, my, my next song on my playlist is from neither of these albums, but it's from the, the, the again, much underappreciated Technical Ecstasy by Black Sabbath. And the song is called Backstreet Kids. And to me, it has Tony Iommi's single best guitar solo on it. It's absolutely fantastic. And my wife got me uh, an Alexa quite a big size Alexa for my Christmas. And she said it's the worst thing she ever bought me because I'm on it all the time. <laughs> and I play these songs over and over and over again. So, I mean, Physical Graffiti, to me, has not one single bad track on it. Every song in that double album is absolutely wonderful. But to me, Custard Pie 
is just the most energetic of them. And uh, Backstreet Kids by Black Sabbath. But the, the, the guitar solo is so seamless and perfect. And Dan, it reminds me a little bit about some of the solos uh, that Eddie Van Halen used to play. Although I know in some of them, they, like the, the famous one in, in Beat It by Michael Jackson was many different bits all spliced mm -hmm. together. But it's, it's just, you, you, if you don't know the song, you should listen to it. I think it's just a pure genius, the, the guitar solo in it. We were talking, Kurt and I were talking uh, just a little bit before we, uh, before we joined the discussion about, about Jimmy Page in particular. And about uh, Page being not the most technically accurate guitar player uh, who's ever lived, uh, or the most consistent guitar player who's ever picked up an axe, but he's the most Jimmy Pagey one that's ever played guitar. Uh, uh, Keith Moon, there's a, there, one of my favorite musician quotes ever, uh, is the Keith Moon quote where he says, I'm the best Keith Moon type drummer there is. <laughs> like that says a lot about uh about that indelible signature that a person puts on um who was it that was talking about uh i think it was conan o'brien or somebody who had a guitar in his office and and carlos santana came uh, when he was on the show and he came into his office and uh he picked up the conan's guitar and started playing it was like it's my guitar but right it sounds like Carlos Santana on my guitar because of because he's him. He knows how to draw that sound out of that instrument, which I think is is absolutely one of the things that I wanted to to talk to you, Bill, about is this idea that your creative process uh, is is your own, and then you that's what ends up in the bottle. But when it ends up in someone's mouth, it becomes theirs. Uh, your your creation becomes something that they can only process through being them. Uh, that that on some level that's got to be. I know. I know. When you know, when you're you're putting whiskey in a bottle, and particularly when you're cutting it to strength, and then you kind of decided that the that the bottling strength of that whiskey is how you feel that it best represents itself uh, according to your original vision. You've touched on something there, Dan. That I think this is very important. That whether or not you're listening to a piece of music or you're enjoying a fine whiskey or a lovely glass of wine or a really good craft beer, there can sometimes be something very, very personal and it's pointless trying to describe what you're feeling to other people because it is so personal to you. And sometimes you just get in the zone of that. And I often say, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but semi-seriously, that sometimes if I'm drinking something fabulous, it's so good that I'm almost in tears as I drink it. And it's just resonating with me in some way on a physical a taste, an emotional level. It all comes together and everything else just disappears. So you reference that Tony Iommi, so you, you hear that and it hits you so, but something, uh, something that, here's what strikes me, Tony Iommi, Jimmy Page, Eddie Van Halen, the three that you have referenced, the thing that I find fascinating is their conviction to their sound, to Dan's point about Carlos Santana makes Conan O'Brien's uh, 
guitar sound like Carlos Santana. They have this conviction of sound. B.B. King is the same way, and yet he's in his 90s, and he says, I'm still trying to get my tone right. Mm-hmm. But what fascinates me as a, a bit of a noodler on a guitar is I'm twisting knobs and uh, hitting pedals, and I'm doing this and that. I don't have any conviction of any kind of sound or tone. But you listen to somebody like Tony Iommi all the way through his career. Now, there's this conviction to perfecting this sound, his sound. Um, and I suppose there's the parallels in what you're talking about in, in, in your world in, in creation. You've got to have a pretty singular vision. Or you're going to end up with a mess, right? Yeah. And it, it, it's funny you see that, Kirk, but any time I see somebody playing a Gibson SG guitar, I always think of Tony Iommi. And why does it not sound like he makes it sound? Because to me, that's what a Gibson SG should sound like. Because he chopped his fingers off in the factory he worked in before he split to go on the road. Exactly, yeah. Which some people would say is careless. Uh, that's a horrible story. Like you're you're working in this factory. Your parents are telling you to work in the factory. You're a musician. All you want to do is that. You decide you're going to quit. You go home. Uh, it could be apocryphal, but I think the story is. And they say, no, you go back to the factory. You go back to the factory, you're frustrated. You have an industrial accident with your hands, with your fingers, and and, and then you eventually do quit, and, and you go and become a guitar player. Um, yeah. Gosh, it's like uh, Django Reinhardt getting caught in yeah. a fire and getting you know the tools of the trade damaged, relearning. It is amazing strife there. Sorry for the... Side no, note that's on guitar players getting hurt, <clears throat> getting injured, but it's nah. the irony is, uh, yeah, and it really is. And, and, and Bill, you'd mentioned a thing about, um, uh, or actually, uh, current that, that idea that BB King never really stopped working to perfect that tone. I'm guessing that the like the Lighthouse Project, I'm guessing that part of that is speaks to that same thing, obviously. You've been doing what you're doing for a long time, uh, and the accolades and and the and the the whiskeys that have been awarded, and and the the breadth of experience that you bring to the table. That is the lighthouse partly the for the development of Bill. I mean, is that it's not necessarily just about the whiskey. It's it's kind of about you too, right? I, I think so, I, and I think it's a sort of physical manifestation of my experimental approach to things uh, and the fact that we've managed to to turn the Glenmorangie brand into one that's renowned for being a little bit innovative, thinking a little bit differently. And so th- th- this is, I mean, it, it, people are talking about it a lot. To me, I'm just shrugging. It's no big deal. And I know it's seven and a half million pounds worth of kit in there, but it's no big deal. You know, it's just something that might allow me to discover some new flavors or some new things. And, you know, as you can imagine, I have the weight of the Moet Hennessy world on my shoulders in terms of the expectation of what will come from that. You know, that doesn't faze me. As far as I'm concerned, it's an experimental laboratory where I will try things out. 
And if I get some pretty good things out of it, then we might bottle it. So I always have had a fairly relaxed attitude to things. I mean, I'm deadly serious about the quality of what I do, but I'm not going to let it kind of consume me completely. Sure. Um, and that that reminds me, uh, you went and grabbed yourself a whiskey. What did you uh, What did you pick up? I did I did? And and I've chosen this very deliberately because um, we we recently launched a new member of the Glenmorangie range called X by Glenmorangie. And, you know, it was a bit of fun choosing that name. It, it gives you a, a slightly mystical hint to it, the experimental nature of it. But it's one of these things, and I need to choose my words very carefully here, that has been pounced upon by the marketeers. And I like what they've done. I, I like the name. It was one of them that suggested it. I like the way they've packaged it. But they're they're promoting it as being made for mixing. And I made this whiskey, and I didn't make it for mixing. I made it for drinking. And that's what I'm doing. I'm Excellent. drinking it. And okay, <laughs> I have put a rock of ice in there. And you know, if people want to mix it, that's great. And I understand that a lot of people will do. But like all my whiskies, I made it for drinking and enjoying. <laughs> well, and I think so people. Have this is the way I like it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, some of the some of the initial feedback that we've gotten uh, from the from the public is. Okay, but it's great by itself, uh, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, I know. And then some of the feedback we've gotten from retailers is, can we play down the mixing thing? Because it gives the impression, and this, this is coming from a, from, a, from a retailer's perspective and possibly from a little bit uh, of an old school mentality, uh, and possibly from the precursors to X that may not have been particularly delicious on their own. Not from Glamorgy, but, but other whiskeys that have been purportedly <laughs> for mixing. Uh, the retail environment, the feedback has been not uniformly, but some feedback has been, man, can we dial that down a little because it gives the impression that it should not be consumed by itself. Uh, I, I know exactly where they're coming from with that, and I completely agree with it. So, you know, as you know yourself, Dan, because you know the technical uh, details of that, that uh, the elements of whiskies in there which are matured in the new charred oak are giving these lovely spicy chocolate ginger notes. And that is the main difference between that and the original, that it still has a bit of the silkiness, but it's got a bit more oomph to it. So, you know, th th this, this whiskey is Led Zeppelin. Uh, Glenmorangie original is Astrid Gilberto or something like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way I would it. See what I did yeah, there? I, yeah, that's very nice, nicely done. I like it. Um, yeah, I we've gotten some uh, some tremendous feedback on X so far, and and it's one of those things uh, within the context of a discussion like this, when uh, Scotch whiskey is is sometimes perceived uh, as being steeped in tradition, and when you as an element of the of the industry that creates that. Uh, when you're associated with something that that bucks that trend aggressively enough that it ruffles a bunch of feathers, then there's there's a there's a response. Um, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, and I think I know the answer to this. Do, do you give a shit? I mean, uh, is I'm guessing the answer to that is no. 
in terms of how X is perceived by that envelope of consumers that we're that we're that we're talking about. But I wanted to get your take on, you know, the the, the how X is is being overlaid onto the drinking public. What's where's your head at with that? Um, if I'm quite honest about it, a slightly uncomfortable Dan, because I think that aspect of it is being overplayed a little bit. Um, and you know, I, I would mind it less if some of the suggestions for mixing had been, how can I put this delicately, uh, better than, than some <laughs> of the ideas out there. But, um, yeah, I, I want people to look at this and see the Glenmorangie name and think, yeah, that, that'll be pretty good. I'm going to give that a go. And if they then decide they want to mix it, then by all means do so. But as I say, I, I, I thought long and hard about what to choose for this podcast. And I chose this very deliberately because it's made for drinking <laughs> and enjoying <laughs> Yeah, the the second incarnation of the label. Maybe we can just put that on there. It's. I think it would actually be if you if you think about what uh, X is as what is perceived to be as it's out, it's launched, it's out there. People are drawing their conclusions from it, and the packaging says a certain thing. The next iteration of that packaging, if it was to say made for drinking, I think it would be not just funny, but I think it would actually lend a bit more context to, to what it is that we're trying to do with it. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. But uh, anyway, and you know, I've got I've I know I've got your endorsement and David Blackmore, who gives me pretty straightforward feedback sometimes about things. <laughs> he says it's just great on its own, and I said, yeah, I know it is. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't have released it. Right, exactly. And you know, I didn't when it came to be when it came to my house. I was like, I don't know what to expect because we are. We're outside of our standard operating neighborhood, um, at least in terms of how the how this skew positions itself versus the rest of the portfolio, uh, and and as and I, I tried it and I loved it and I think it's fantastic. But it, as we've as we've grown into what this thing is, I think we've taken a really interesting position as of as a fairly high-profile brand to do a thing that is that hasn't that really hasn't been done before in terms of taking the concept of single malt and making it appeal to a much broader audience that exists outside of uh, of scotch whiskey even maybe even outside of distilled spirits definitely outside of whiskey i think it's something that the entire industry will benefit from uh, and I've been since we've been talking since I've been talking in public about this. I've been likening to this idea that if you own a restaurant, that you've got to see twenty five percent new faces every month if you're going to establish a core clientele base that will keep your doors open. And for single malt in particular, we haven't necessarily gotten the big huge hooks to drag people in off the streets and into the category in order to secure the long term health of the category itself. And I think a brand like this had to come along and do something like this. I think it took a lot of guts, uh, and I, th you know, we'll take a few slings and arrows from from the the Illuminati. Mm. Uh, but I think it was I think it was a very important thing for the long term health of the single malt category, uh, not just for our brand. 
there, there can be such an austerity to certain things, uh, and you can feel outside of the club, uh, very much so. It, 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 I think it happens in booze. It sure, for sure, it happens in all kinds of the arts. And it, it, I grew up around a bunch of uh, symphonic musicians. I, I was uh, around them. They didn't want those performances to be everybody's in stuffy clothes and stuff. Yeah, they, 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 there's a great misunderstanding uh, 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 of that. They, I think it's a lot of times the patrons of various things that apply this austerity that makes it very unappealing to others, um, and, and and it kind of leaves you outside of the club. But I, I just remember that when I was younger, uh, you know, this clarinetist is like. He wants it to be like a rock show. Wear your jeans. Have a good time. This is music. This is not tea and starched shirts. I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting. So I like what you're saying. It seems like in the, in the packaging and all that, and I'm no expert on this, but uh, accessibility. Uh, we've talked about accessibility and other things. Sometimes those things are dismissed. Sometimes they give people access or introduction. I, I was going it's, to it's, throw it's a, a, another. I mean, a, another little song in there. Yeah, um, yeah do and it. Do it. I, I'll be deeply, deeply interested to see if either of you fine gentlemen know this song at all. And it was Uh-oh. a kind of underground soul classic back in the seventies that my friend Jim. Jim Tosh and I loved at school and the fact that nobody else liked this song at all made it just all the more deeply appealing to us because it was our thing and it's a group called Curved Air yeah. and the song is called Backstreet Love uh, Curved Air wow and that now you're getting into some uh, some prog which I'm a, I'm a fan of prog rock uh, I, I sort of an unabashed fan of it uh, Curved Air I'm I'm only familiar with to an extent I couldn't tell you that I'm that I'm familiar with that particular song but I really do I liked what they were about it was uh, the King Crimson era basically yeah uh, yep. Curved Air did some really cool stuff they eventually employed uh, my favorite drummer in the history of the world uh, Stuart Copeland who be- who went on to form right. the police but uh, I did uh, not but, know yeah. that wow. yeah so he replaced uh, the the original drummer for curved air and I cannot remember his name it passed away recently unfortunately um, uh, but he was eventually replaced by uh, Stuart Copeland who uh, ended up married to the lead singer Sonia yeah, uh, and they're they're not anymore. But uh, uh, yeah, that was the beginnings of uh, the, Stewart's career uh, in, in as a professional drummer. Anyway, and he eventually became part of the Police. I, I yeah, gotta say that great ad. That was really intimidating, and I'm glad at least one of us <laughs> knew it. Uh, and 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 and, and it, given its association with prog rock, and given the differences that Dan and I have in in some areas of music, I'm not surprised I missed it. <laughs> It, it, Kurt's it, not what I, I like about this particular <laughs> song is, you know, I, I do occasionally listen to quite a bit of prog rock. You know, I listen to my King Crimson. I listen to Yes quite a lot. But sometimes they can 
you know, be a little bit self-indulgent if I'm being diplomatic about it. <laughs> I've never it's thought about it that way. <laughs> I'm sure you have. But, um, but, and th- that's, but this, that's the uh, big knock. Yeah. The, the song Backstreet Love, it's almost like a, a, a marriage of soul and prog rock together. And I just, I've, it, it's not like anything else I've ever heard. I look Fantastic. Forward to I'm looking to forward to digging into that one. Yeah. So Jen, that's I part think... of what's fun with our collaborative with our collaborative playlist. Part of what's fun is uh, what might be self indulgent is this podcast, Bill, and and <laughs> you know we we come away with uh, uh, you know a weekend of of Latin jazz, thinking back uh, when that entered my life, and then and then coming away with your playlist and, and going and listening to that and, and just expanding uh, not just the knowledge but the enjoyment. Dan's helped me with uh, whiskey with that. I came in pretty uneducated and uh, still am, but I'm in, in learning how to uh, enjoying the education. But then the music, I love that I don't know this track, and I'm going to listen to it right after this. Good. Uh, I, I hope you're not disappointed, Kurt. It strikes me as being a little bit inappropriate for a music lover if I didn't throw in one Rolling Stones song. And the reason I'll throw this one in is that... Um, I think it, it's to me it is head and shoulders the best song the Rolling Stones have ever written, and almost nobody agrees with me on this, which makes it all the more appealing. And it's the oh, absolutely fabulous tumbling dice, which mm. I think yes. just encapsulates everything about the Stones, and it's got a everything. really unusual beat to it as well. You know, parts of it just don't work, but somehow they do. That is a fantastic and, 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 track. And it's the closest thing to a hit on Exile of Main Street. And Exile of Main yes. Street is my Desert Island album yep. because it's of got course. every form of American music and their music on it to offer. And Tumbling Dice has a groove that is so quintessential Stones. That's what drives through the middle of that. Oh, I feel like you're just... Fantastic. That's, wow. Right. Very Beautiful. cool. Okay. Well, thanks, Bill. So, gentlemen, uh, thank was, you very much. And This was a real pleasure. Thank you, Bill. I, I hope you've got something of interest in there. And uh, Kurt, hopefully get to meet you uh, in person someday. And Dan, maybe even see you later on this year. Yep, hoping to see you uh, September-ish, if, if possible. Right. That'd be fantastic. Okay. Thank you, sir. Right. Gents, cheers. Bye. 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 Bye.